Well, I invite you all to turn with me in the Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you need a Bible, there's probably one nearby in the pew. 2 Samuel is found after 1 Samuel and right after Joshua and Judges, a little bit before you get to First and Second Kings in the Old Testament, kind of in the heart of the Old Testament. As we continue our series through this uh, book of the scriptures, I'll remind us that last week we considered this theme of God's holiness, his sovereign holiness, and looked at it in, uh, in the chapter 6, immediately preceding this one, where Uzzah, one of the people tasked with transporting the holy ark of the covenant, symbolizing God's holy presence, while it was being transported, reached out. And did what maybe to us seems like a small thing, steadied it to keep it from falling, but touched with his hand the Ark of the Covenant. And that uh, box, which symbolized God's holiness, contrasted with uh, Uzzah's hand, which like ours is marred by our sinful nature, uh, God struck him down. And we wrestled with that last week and saw, uh, of course, the theme of God's holiness, but then also two responses. One, that it really bids us to treasure what Christ has done, that this holy one has been sent into the world to uh, take the, the place of unholy ones like you and me, that we could have a relationship with the living God. That's number one. And then number two, that God does desire that we live lives that are holy. And it's tough in our language. We don't always understand what that word means, but it's really about being set apart so that when we uh, care for the poor, when we seek to share the gospel with others, when we try to remain faithful in our marriages, when we seek to parent diligently, when we try to stay uh, clear of the temptations of greed and lust and substance addiction and, you know, fits of anger and rage and all those things that kind of grab us in. That would cause us to not live set apart. We say, wow, we, we serve this holy God. He's set apart. We, like him, are bid to live set apart as well. So those two responses we saw. And, and then this week, as we turn to our passage for today, we see that God's not only sovereign in his holiness, but he's sovereign in his promises. That he's faithful to keep his promises in contrast to uh, all of us that struggle to really Stand by our word and not only that he's faithful to keep those promises, but that there's a core thread of God's people in God's place under the plan of God's rule and blessing that winds its way all through the scriptures and that God's promises tie all of what we see in this part of scripture in Genesis and this part of Psalms and this area of Matthew and this part of Revelation together in a way that really will beautifully help us to understand God's word. So there's a lot in our verses today. This is one of those uh, key moments where those promises are reaffirmed, that it just happens to be where we are now in 2 Samuel. I'm going to read uh, read aloud. You read along silently. You know, we read the catechism question earlier. Uh, David led us uh, through that. That reminds us, you know, how should the word be read and heard, that it be effective? So it, it reminds us that this is a participatory event here on, on, on Sunday mornings. Although I'm up here preaching, there is a way for each of us to receive that word and to seek to, to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. So even as I begin reading now, just uh, verses 1 through 17 of this chapter and then one or two verses from the end, let's uh, pray, be praying and be seeking to uh, receive God's word and have it really transform our lives. Starting at verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7. 
Now, when the king, that is David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in his house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their place and be disturbed no more. The violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Here's a play on words. Follow it with me. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. And then verses 28 and 29 at the very end of the chapter. And now, O Lord, you are God and your words are true. You promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of your promises and this particularly monumental one in the scriptures. And we ask, Lord, that we would see you more clearly today as one who is faithful to all the things that he promises, that we would build our lives more and more around that. And Lord, as well, that we would be given a greater understanding, a greater connectivity, a greater integration of our understanding of your word, seeing the way that your promises are woven through them and knit them together with your people being located in your place under the good plan of your rule and blessing. Help us in that regard, we pray. Amen. I will build a wall. I will pay for everyone's college. I will win against the other party. 
I'll uphold the Constitution. I'll extend health care. I will protect our nation. The promises of a presidential year are plentiful and predictable, aren't they? And if we've been around the block a few times, we're rightly skeptical about whether any of them coming from any person's mouth will ever be fulfilled. In fact, the lack of faithfulness in political promises is so rampant that even as we hear them and want to believe them, we check ourselves, don't we? (laughs) Say, no, don't go there. Don't let yourself get lured in. Once again, even the good promises that come from seemingly good people. How amazing then and how precious it is to see that just as we have seen that God is sovereign over leaders in the beginning of Second Samuel, that God is sovereign over consequences, that he's sovereign over the timing of what he's doing in our lives and in our world, that he's sovereign over his holiness, that he's also sovereign in faithfully fulfilling all that he promises, that God keeps his promises, even when we look around and look at ourselves and realize that we don't even come close a lot of the time. Do you believe that about God today? That he's a faithful one to his promises? Are there specific promises, specific things that God conveys in his word that you're kind of hanging your hat on, that you're building your life around, that you and I are Banking on are those active realities in our day to day life. I'm not talking about the uh, TV preacher promises of health and wealth and perfect prosperity. I'm talking about the bedrock truths that we can find life, hope, joy, salvation, purpose, comfort in the things of God. Our passage today speaks about the promises of God. It speaks a promise of God and reminds us in that sense of all the promises of God, the little ones here and there scattered all across Scripture and the big ones as well that weave together the fabric of God's word. If you want to follow along in your worship guide and today you may want to do that, even if you don't normally do so, because there's a little chart we're going to get to in the back of the worship guide that we will touch on in just a minute. And I think. All of that will make a whole lot more sense if you have it in front of you. But uh, at the very least, you might uh, consider this main idea that I think is clearly portrayed in these verses, that since God is sovereignly faithful to his promises, he's sovereign so he can carry out what he says he will do. Right. Even a well-meaning person who intends to be faithful their promises and doesn't you know doesn't waver from that because of the limitations of us as you know humans we're limited we only do so much we can't actually fulfill even the good things we intend to do god is sovereign and faithful in his promises so we should take him at his word well what's it look like to take god at his word well look with me at the verses here and let's get a little context And then I want to take a look at how we can weave all of that and see how actually what is said here in 2 Samuel 
is a sort of key, a lock to to uh, a key to unlock a lot of what we see across the scope of the scriptures. And then we'll draw some application at the end from some verses that we didn't read in this chapter of David's response to God's promise to him. So those uh, three things we want to tackle today. The first thing, if you look with me at the beginning of chapter seven again, is uh, David's goal. He, he, he makes a proposition to God, essentially. And, and it makes sense. He's, he's now settled. They brought the Ark of the Covenant. They sorted out the things from chapter 6 and the problems they had. Uh, David's got the kingdom and, and, and both the northern and southern kingdoms are uh, surrendered to him and following him and so forth. So things are sort of settled down, as it describes. And, and even other leaders have come in and helped build a, a house for David. And David realizes there's an inappropriate contrast here. He's settled. He's established. He's got a place, a palace, I guess you would call it, of some sort. That he's living in. But God, the representation of God in the ark and so forth is still located in a tent. It seems like there's a discrepancy there. So, you know, a genuine desire, it seems, on the part of David to build some sort of temple for God. And we know that temple is going to be built. But watch how this negotiation goes back and forth. I don't know if you followed the verses. But so verse one through three, David proposes that. Then verses four to, uh, let's say, about seven, God responds and basically says, um, you know, that's nice, David. But remember, if I want stuff done, I can get stuff done. If I wanted a house to live in, I'd get a house to live in. I don't need you to provide that house. Thank you for the gesture, but I don't actually need you to do that. And it reminds me, I was actually talking to some uh, bleachers yesterday at a baseball game with uh, with one of you all here about that dynamic that happens. Maybe uh, especially if let's say if you're in your years 30 to 50 and you get together for the, the family dinner and you've got your parents there. Let's say they're in the uh, 60 to 70 range. And you go and it's time to, to, to check out at the restaurant and so forth. And the check comes and, and you feel like, OK, I'm in my 30s, 40s, you know, maybe getting a 50. I, I've got a decent you know, income. I can at least pay for this. Deal. My parents did all this wonderful stuff for me. Why don't you let me take the check? And, and I don't know how your situation plays out, but but that rarely works successfully for me. You know, dad still wants to handle the check. Mom and dad still want to do that. Why? Because there's some honor to being able to be the, the parent still, even when I'm an adult, and to be the provider. And, and rightly, they still desire that position. Uh, if you try to pull that one on my Grammy, my boy's great Grammy, you know, you may get away with it, and you'll end up with a 50 or $100 bill stashed somewhere in your car later on. She'll have snuck out there, and she's going to get retribution big time. It's kind of that kind of thing going on with David and God. David said, you know, can I pick up the check? Why don't I build a house? And God says, you know, I'll take care of the house. But he goes beyond that, doesn't he? You see the play on words here as we walk through it. Look at verses 11 through 17. He goes on and he says, you know, right at the end of verse 7, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. God says, I'm going to make you a house. And then we realize, oh, he's, he's talking about a household. Or what we would call a dynasty, a legacy of David's family. That he's going to expand David's family. And of course, as we read on, he talks about the fact that he will be, God will be a father to the king. Will we be a son? If we know anything about Jesus and Jesus coming to the world, he's the son of David. He's the ultimate fulfillment of this. And of course, David's son Solomon is a sort of short term fulfillment of it. So you get the picture. God's sovereignly 
wanting to fulfill his promises to David and even make promises that David's not even really asking God to make, that David could maybe handle. God wants to, to keep that. So we got that picture of what's happening here in this particular passage. And what I want us to see is this, though. This is actually a sort of key that opens a lock of, of a lot of things that take a place across the scope of, of Scripture, of a thread of God's uh, people, God's place, and God's rule and blessing. And let me try to paint the picture this way. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I took my four boys to go see the Star Wars movie. Yes, we were behind the times. We got it at the Dollar Theater. Saved some money, but we missed it when it was all first coming out. Well, we got to see the new Star Wars movie. I guess, help me out, I think it's number seven, right? So we're on number seven now for the Star Wars movie. It's pretty good. We enjoyed it. But imagine, if you will, that you were a very unique American person. That you had perhaps n- not seen all the Star Wars movies. Or, or maybe just not seen one of the movies. Or maybe you had only ever seen one scene from one of the seven movies. So maybe uh, ten minutes out of, I don't know, 15 hours worth of film. Let's imagine that was the case for you as a person. Now, whatever that scene was, let's say it's the destruction of the Death Star. Uh, let's say it's Luke being trained by, you know, Yoda on whatever Tatooine, whatever, you know, planet that was. Uh, I know the Star Wars junkies will come up and correct me on that afterwards. What if it's uh, Anakin in that pod race that was in sort of one of those newer movies that came out, I don't know, 10 years ago? What if it was any of those scenes is pretty awesome to watch. There's some really cool things happening there. And ultimately, each of those scenes ties together with the whole epic that we know as the Star Wars. So it's good to appreciate that little scene, just like we can look at this one passage today about God's promise to David and appreciate what God's doing there. But the fact is that really that's a key that unlocks all of what's happening across Scripture. So look with me at this little chart that I put in your worship guide. It's taken from a book called God's Big Picture. By Vaughn Roberts, I highly recommend it. Uh, whether you've been in the faith for a while and you, you know, if you're honest, you realize, you know, I don't actually really, I couldn't really articulate how Leviticus relates to Second Kings, to Isaiah, to Matthew, to Romans, to Revelation. I couldn't really help put all that together. To me, they're all good. I know they're God's word. I believe in them. But they're sort of separate snippets, separate scenes in that epic. And I don't really know how they connect. I'm not even sure that I am supposed to be looking for a connection to them. Well, maybe this will be helpful for you. Maybe whet your appetite to uh, to look at the book, but perhaps even in itself uh, help give you the tools to kind of connect that. If you take a look at that little uh, chart with me, it shows how. These promises of God's word are really different intervals. We call them covenants. There's different covenants, promises that God makes throughout Scripture. And if you start with me in the chart all the way back in the Garden of Eden, you see in Genesis, you remember this. God said to Adam and Eve, if you if you remain faithful and you don't eat of that tree that you're not supposed to eat of, you will live. There was a promise made to them. There's a promise of Works and all the rest of the promises, we could say, are promises of grace. They had a place that they were in, the garden, and they had a, a rule and blessing of God. He gave them their word, and he was relating to them. Remember, they walked with him 
They walked with him and knew him in the garden. We know what happens after that. They fall. They step away into sin, just as we you know, regularly do in our sinfulness. And so the kingdom is perished, you might say there. And there's there's really, I guess, for a moment there, no people that are part of God's kingdom. They're banished from God's place and they're living in disobedience. And curse, we see that on up through Noah and God decides to wipe out everything. And we start to see, though, that picture of redemption with Noah, the uh, the rainbow that's put in the sky and God saying, I'll never destroy the earth again. And then we see it laid out even more clearly in Abraham. I mentioned a few weeks ago the covenant that God makes with him with the segments of the animal separated in the smoking pot coming down before and Abraham being asleep. Kind of like our passage with David, God saying, I'm going to be the one to fulfill the covenant, not you. I'm the God who graciously does this. I fulfill this for you. Of course, God promised Abraham to have descendants in a promised land in Canaan. Then track on with me because we're getting up to where we are right now in Scripture. The partial kingdom. We see God's people now coming into the land. The Israelites have been established. They have this promised land that God's given now. David is reigning over and they have God's law and they have God's king that are part of God's rule and blessing over them. But, of course, if we know anything about the scriptures, we know things go downhill pretty quickly from David. And the kings are a train wreck of all sorts of disobedience, more disobedience than obedience to God. And they're sent in a sort of... uh, uh, cosmic galactical uh, timeout, if you will, where they're sent out to different places like Babylon and Assyria, God's people to to have some form of discipline for turning away to try to restore them. And during that time, they receive the promises from the prophets about the new temple, about this place that they're going to be and that they will have this new king. Of course, Jesus, we know that leads us to the present kingdom and the proclaimed kingdom, which is kind of where we are today. Where you see that God's people are located in Jesus Christ, right? If you're a believer, you've got Christ inside of you. All of us are connected that way as believers. That we're in God's place. We dwell in Christ. Now, we have this school building and we, you know, purchase some land and hoping at some point soon to put a building on and so forth. Those are good places to meet for us. But ultimately, we're in Christ. That's where we are meeting. The scriptures even say he tabernacled with us. And then we know that Jesus reigns over our lives in his rule and blessing. And then we see that we're to proclaim that, to spread that message to others, to proclaim kingdom. And lastly, in Revelation, we read about this multinational kingdom with Jesus on the throne in this place that we call the new heavens and the new earth under God's rule and blessing. You see that? That's a lot. But you see how God's people in God's place under the plan of God's ruling blessing is that thread that connects together all of God's word. And what I want you to realize is we're getting to see one of the main parts of that right here in Second Samuel, where God promises that there's going to be a king and that king's going to fulfill the things for his people that are needed. So God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Well, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to it? Take a look at how David responds. And I think this is just fantastic. So how, how do we respond to just the stuff we see here? Because that's all David really knows about. But then how is the response should be magnified in your life and mine when we see the full scope of it? Because we've got the opportunity and vantage point of looking back on all that's been done and looking ahead through 
you know, the scriptures to see what's coming in the future in a place like the book of Revelation. Look at verse 18 uh, with me as we close here. Verse 18 says, then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you brought me thus far? Right. I, I don't know if maybe there was a little bit of pride on David's part in his suggestion that he build the house for God. Maybe, maybe not. In any event, God reminds him, I took you out of a sheep pasture. That's what you were doing. And now you're the king over these people, Israel. And oh, by the way, I'm going to make your name great for centuries to come in my kingdom. And David is undone with this. Just like you and I, if we realize, oh, God has drawn me into the story of his redeeming work. He's given me a part to play. And he showered his love upon me and brought me into that purpose and the meaning of, of living with him and for him. That you and I ought to, one of our first responses would be, who am I? How do I have this privilege to be able to know God through Christ? Verse 19, a second response that he has. He says, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes. Oh, Lord, you know, this is it's no big deal for God. He's going to build a house. No problem. He's got bigger things that he's planning to do. He says, you've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this instruction, listen to this, is for mankind. This isn't just something that's going on in this little out-of-the-way place called Israel. This is ultimately going to bear fruit for all of humanity, all of us, even uh, you and I today, sitting here, uh, completed Jews or Gentiles gathered together in this place. Verse 20. It's not just uh, something that humbles us and is for all people, but verse 20, uh, David says, and what can what more can David say to you? OK, so we'll see that David has a hard time remaining speechless. But for a moment, he realizes that one of his responses and maybe one for you and I should be I'm speechless. I'm amazed when I look at this book and realize it was written by different people in different places in different time and covers different types of literature and so forth. And that same theme is woven through and through from beginning to end. I'm speechless. I'm amazed at what you are doing, God, at who you are. Verse 22. Jump down there. He doesn't stay speechless for long. Verse 22, he says, therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There's none like you. There's no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And he goes on to give praise and thanks to God. If you want to see some more, turn to a little place called the Psalms. And he goes on and on with praises for the living God. How fitting for us to gather here. And I'm so encouraged. I'm so thankful for our, our musicians up here leading us well in the musical part of our worship. But I tell you, it seemed like in the last couple of weeks or months that there is a, a heart and a desire in our Sunday morning gathering time. You know, I can't sing at all. You guys, maybe the mic's been on a few times and you guys are well aware of that. I'm not very good at singing. But, but you know, sing out in our worship time, folks. Don't worry about whether somebody around you can seems like they can sing good and you don't feel like you can. We got a lot of stuff to praise and give God thanks for. That's just one way we can return to him praise. And then lastly, uh, look at, at verse 23. Verse 23, and then we'll close. It says there uh, this. It says, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things uh, and driving them out and etc. etc. What I want you to see there is this. God's got a purpose. 
in what he's doing in our lives. And that is to make his name known. Remember that scripture in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount where he calls us, invites us to be salt. He invites us to be a city on the hill. And he says, why? Why? Why would you live out the things of the kingdom, even in a culture that seems to just want to punch the things of the kingdom in the face every turn it, it gets? Why would we be faithful to try to do that? Well, we'd be faithful to do it so that they would see our good deeds and what? Praise our father in heaven. That's the reason you and I are brought into the kingdom. Ultimately, yeah, we get great blessing from it. Yes, we get the eternal life with Christ I and mean, we can add them all up. But ultimately, it's so you and I can be shining lights, even with our fallenness. We have this treasure in jars of clay, but so that people around us can see that the all surpassing power is from God and not from us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are a promise keeping God, that you do not fail or falter in fulfilling. And Lord, that you even surprise us Uh, when we think we're sort of doing something for you. You remind us that you're always doing for us. We are always dependent upon you. And we thank you, Lord, for the part we can play in your kingdom. But we praise you. Lord, that you are working out the fulfillment of your good will in this world. Lord, thank you for numbering us among your people. Thank you for allowing us to be in your place, to be located in Christ, even as we're gathered here today. And thank you, Lord, even the place that we want to toss it off sometimes or break free from it. We thank you for your good rule and blessing in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus name. Amen.